0: Hey, Magic Lantern listeners, there is no opening scene today, as instead I will be regaling you with tales of my trip to a magical land to the north where there are honey and jalapeno hot chicken sandwiches within 10 feet of every box office, or at least at the theater I went to, the beautiful Royal Theater in Toronto.
1: That's right. We're going to be covering the Toronto True Crime Film Festival. Now, in all my true crime experience, I have to ask you something.
0: Okay, what's that?
1: Is our relationship just a big, long con perpetuated by you in order to get to my tens of dollars?
0: That's right, Sherlock. You're on to me. It's the case of the Pickled Popper, next on The Magic Lantern.
1: Welcome to The Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
0: And I am Cole Rolaine, and welcome to episode 78. This episode is a special episode covering my recent trip to the inaugural Toronto True Crime Film Festival. In one whirlwind weekend, they presented five films and three symposiums covering a wide variety of aspects of the true crime genre.
1: They presented a great collection of both documentary films and fictionalized films based on true crime.
0: They were also nice enough to make the majority of the film selections available for you to view remotely so we can actually cover most of them together since you were unable to make the trip.
1: Yes, you big baloney. I didn't get to go. (laughs) So instead, the pup and I watched four of the films on our couch.
0: Well, you missed a pretty good time. Did I mention that already to you? Did I tell you that?
1: You did.
0: Should we get right to opening night?
1: Great. Take us through it.
0: The very first thing I want to say is that the Toronto True Crime Film Festival runs on time. I know it might not seem like a big deal, but it is one of those little things that you come to really appreciate. So kudos to them for that right off the bat. It was also a pleasant surprise to discover that each of the features was going to be accompanied by a short of a similar theme that was tangentially connected in some way, because I love short films. So the very first thing that we actually saw was an experimental short from 2016 by Alicia K. Harris, called Maybe If It Were a Nice Room. It's only about two minutes long, but it is very affecting in that short time, through, I would say reverie, but reverie is supposed to connote a positive experience, meditation maybe, and very distinct production design. It truly is a poetry of images. She examines the impact of a not-so-elliptical incident that took place between two people, her being one of those I can only assume, You can find this online, so I won't say more about it to spoil the effect. In fact, we're trying to avoid spoilers as much as we can in this episode, since most of these films are very recent.
1: And even though, as we mentioned, they're obviously based on true crimes, you want to know how these unfold, and I think visually is a great way to go.
0: But this short is definitely worth your time to track down. It is lovely and haunting.
1: Before we get into that first main feature... Did anyone mention that there was such a great representation of female artists, both in front of and behind the camera? I asked that because sitting here at home, I only had the products in front of me, and it definitely struck me right away.
0: It wasn't specifically addressed as much as it was just obvious everywhere. It was a really great environment, and you could certainly feel the influence of the staff and programming team, the majority of which were women some of whom are also associated with the Muff Society in Toronto, and that acronym actually stands for Monthly Underground Female Film Society, and it's a feminist community that is devoted to championing women in film and television.
1: I'm really grateful that I got to experience this, but it's definitely an instance where I wish I would have been there to get that same vibe.
0: We'll talk more about that at the end, but it certainly was a very inclusive and welcoming environment. And it goes hand-in-hand with the breakdown of the true crime audience, which we'll also get to in a bit. But for now, the feature of that first pairing was a documentary called Abducted in Plain Sight from 2018, directed by Skye Borgman. And it is about Jan Broberg, a young girl in Pocatello, Idaho, who in 1974 was abducted by their next-door neighbor and her parent's best friend. 18 months later, while out on bail and awaiting trial for kidnapping, he abducted her a second time. I mentioned we're not going to do spoilers on this episode, but suffice it to say that if you are anything like me, your jaw will be on the floor more than once when you watch this. Was that the case for you here at home?
1: This was a doozy. I really talk back to the screen, but that was all out the window with this one. It's so unbelievable and yet oddly relatable, and I think that's because the family members are so honest. I don't know if it's a regional thing, having grown up in Boise, but I definitely felt like I knew and understood these people. And sorry, maybe not understood is the (laughs) right word, but they helped me to understand what they were thinking and feeling at all times.
0: Well, it's like a set of Russian nesting dolls where inside is just one shocking reveal after another. I can't even remember now how many times I put my hands on my head in disbelief. The whole audience did that thing, too, that you mentioned, by the way, talking back to the screen, which usually I hate. But this is one of those rare instances where it is wholly forgivable, because like you say, it is just so unbelievable. The naivete of this family is astounding. And I don't even know if I can describe it as naivete, because some of their decisions were clearly motivated by self-preservation and keeping specific details out of their community.
1: Here's where I think naivete was the right word. From my own personal experience, I understand that sense of not getting the consequences of what you engage in that at first seems fun and potentially harmless. Inexperienced might also be a good word. I think we also have to give them a bit of leeway based on locale and based on the time that the main action takes place, which is the early to mid-70s.
0: You're saying it was a less sophisticated time and place?
1: I think so, and even the FBI agent who was involved in this case from start to finish said that it was his first pedophile case. That wasn't even a term that they used. And the parents tell us that that agent had to drill into their minds that this man has kidnapped your daughter. They couldn't even wrap their minds around that. And the pedophile in this case, we'll call him B, as everyone did, is practically Machiavellian, who could have seen this guy coming? And the film uses actual audio from B, along with the family's home movies and reenactments. And as you listen to this audio, it's like listening to Lolita unfold in this guy's mind. It's astounding and unbelievable and semi-relatable and very moving.
0: I don't want it to sound like I am blaming the victim, and that is definitely not the case with Jan, the young girl at the center of the case. She was a child, and she was clearly groomed and preyed upon and not protected. Her parents, though, it is hard not to at least side-eye that one a little bit. At the Q&A after, literally the only question I wanted to ask was, are you fucking kidding me? Because I just couldn't believe what I had seen. One person picked up on the thing I think that you felt with that lack of sophistication and asked if... They thought they were particularly susceptible to manipulation, or if it could happen to anyone at all. And all I could think when I was watching it was that those particular parents would still be susceptible, which the director herself confirmed with me in conversation the next night when we were talking about it together.
1: Again, I can relate to certain aspects and emotions in this, especially with the last thing that Jan tells us. After we've been talking about forgiveness, her parents forgiving themselves, whether she would ever forgive B. And she said, the person I would most like to have passed through my life is the person I will likely think about every day.
0: So we got off to a really strong start. The second short of the evening was Traffic Stop from 2017, directed by Kate Davis and David Heilbroner. And this one actually has a direct connection to our community, as it is about a particular incident that happened in Austin in 2015 when a young black woman, Breon King, was pulled over for speeding and then manhandled by the arresting white officer, all caught on the dash cam. Do you remember when this happened?
1: Oh, absolutely, and I've still been reading about it. There are things that continue to happen with the case, and the video is widely available as well.
0: In both cases on this opening night, the shorts felt to me like they grounded us, the audience, brought us down to earth, and served as a reminder that there is so much more than entertainment at stake in this genre.
1: That sounds like a really good programming note. I mean, it really seems like these people were on the ball.
0: They certainly were. Unfortunately, in this case, I think the subject deserves a little better documentary than we got here. It does one thing very well. It shows you quite clearly that the victims of police brutality are human beings, not mugshots, not headlines. We spend a lot of time with her. Getting a glimpse into her daily life, teaching kids, taking dance classes, what we don't get is much of an examination of systemic racism or much of a suggestion as to what to do about it. It may just be that I was so well acquainted with the case that it didn't strike me the same way that it might have other audience members. There wasn't a Q&A after this, so there was really no way to gauge the general response. This all played out very visibly in our local media, so I felt like I already knew everything that this had to offer and then some. One of the fortunate postscripts that I think you're referring to, that officer, Brian Richter, was dismissed from the force finally in 2018 after racking up another excessive force complaint. The feature that that was paired with was My Name is Myesha from 2018, directed by Gus Krieger and written by Krieger and Rickerby Hines, upon whose play Dreamscape the movie is based. This film was a winner at Slamdance, and it stars Rachel Walker as Maisha and John Merchant in multiple roles, and is based on the case of Taisha Miller, a young black woman who was shot and killed by police officers, three white and one Hispanic, called by family members who could not wake her as she lay unconscious in her car. It is a truly horrific story, but what the filmmakers do with it is not at all what you would expect. This one took a little bit for me to hit its stride, or maybe more accurately, it took a little for me to get in sync with its rhythms, because I think it's trying to do so much at one time. Did you click with it right away, or was it a little bit of work for you?
1: I think I had the same experience that you did. I wrote towards the beginning that I wasn't feeling it, that maybe it had worked better as a play. And by the way, Rachel Walker and John Merchant reprised their roles from this two-person show. I think at first I was feeling as though Rachel Walker was possibly working a bit too hard for the camera, that due to her training and her experience, that she might work best in performance, and that's sort of with a capital P performance. But then they started with the first number, the old holy night piece, and I thought, I get this, I like this, everything makes sense at this point.
0: I really responded to the more interpretive sections, the visual experimentation as I would. The parts that were a struggle for me were the stage acting versus screen acting issue that you bring up, and that it occasionally leaned too hard on a poetry slam cadence that has become a cliche by now. Fortunately, those instances are minimal, and by the time we get to the end, I found myself fully invested. Myesha is a character that completely grows on you. Once you feel like you know her well, this movie really clicks. The tragedy is that is also when it's over, and we've lost her. When I was sitting in the theater, I thought that this would probably be right up your alley with your background in theater and dance and how much you love those things. For me, John Merchant is the secret weapon of this film. His beatbox skills are unbelievable.
1: That guy is amazing.
0: If only every Greek chorus was this cool.
1: And Rachel Walker is an amazing dancer, performer. Her physicality is really what captures everything for me. I read a lot more about the play itself because, as you mentioned, that's something that I'm really interested in. And it's been around for a number of years. I believe he started writing it in about 2004. And it's gone through some different permutations, which I think is really interesting as well when you look at it with the short that it was coupled with. Sections have been removed from this, specifically direct racist quotes from the officers themselves that were part of the transcript, part of the court documentation. And the writer, Rickaby Hines, said of the screenplay specifically, that he chose not to focus on the controversy and the politics and focus on the humanity of the story, seeking the same depth of character of the officer who fired in self-defense, quote-unquote, as the young woman whose life was cut tragically short. And I was reading different reviews from several years ago of productions of the play, and audiences, particularly after specific verdicts like the George Zimmerman verdict. Rickaby Hines organized a free production of this, and the audience really seemed to want him to condemn something specific, which he doesn't really do.
0: In this case, in this place and time, how do you feel about his editorial decision to not make it an explicit condemnation? Did it work okay for you that way?
1: I think that's a really complicated question, and I think my answer is tempered by the use of theater. He created this amazing device of using one actor to portray these different roles, which at its core is to get us to see different sides of the story. I'm not sure how the film may have felt differently if we did get that direct racist angle. But instead, the beauty of it is that we focus on Myesha, which is where the focus should be.
0: Well, Day 2 kicked off early with a group of three symposiums covering a variety of true crime-related topics. The first one, why women love true crime. And on that panel, were Kyla Woodard, a producer for the ID channel, Karen Herland, a lecturer at Concordia University, Katherine Legg, a filmmaker, Ramey Bennett, a filmmaker, writer, and curator, and it was moderated by writer Ann Donahue.
1: Were they able to answer that question?
0: Sort of. In their own individual cases, yes. It was a particularly interesting conversation, and fortunately it avoided the pitfalls of stereotype, either by design or just by the nature of the subject. They each demonstrated in a variety of ways, either from personal experience, from closely observing or interacting directly with cases, that women as an audience approach this subject with a great deal of nuance and empathy, with an acknowledgement of the idea that justice is complicated. Even with murderers, there are shades of gray.
1: It reminds me of something that you said in our In a Lonely Place episode about the very differing things that men and women have to worry about in a partner. For women, I think you put it, is this person going to murder me? Does that sense of empathy, of too often being the subject of victimization, play any part into why women might be more drawn to true crime, do you think?
0: It's strange that you bring that up, specifically Catherine Legg? The film that she made is a film called Met While Incarcerated, about women who get involved with prisoners, some of whom have committed horrible crimes. And she cited one example of a woman that was involved with an inmate that said, I've destroyed far more people than he has. He was involved in an organized crime, and his crimes were against other criminals, that whole if you're in the game, you're fair game angle. Whereas she said she has participated in the destruction of lives and the dissolution of families in her role as a sex worker. She felt a much greater guilt and sense of personal responsibility than any murderer she knew because she perceived her activities as having a greater number of innocent victims as collateral damage. They also addressed the appetite that women have for these stories, and how it ranges from everything from seeking a coping mechanism to reconcile things they've been through, consuming it as a story that you are in control of, that you can put down whenever you want to, all the way to the other end, to the downright fetishistic allure of the dark side of human nature. They weren't shy about taking that on head-on either. Struggling with that concept of the sexiness, quote-unquote, of evil was definitely one of the things that they have the hardest time with. The statistics were definitely borne out by the audience of the festival, too, which I would say skewed 70-30 female.
1: I can definitely identify with any of those motives that you outlined. And looking into my own immediate family, every woman I know is obsessed with true crime. I definitely don't want to devolve into any kind of gender role stereotyping. As you mentioned, they avoided that. So I'm going to ask you personally, as a person, what draws you to true crime?
0: I would say I skew toward the morbid fascination end of things. I am not trying to control any element of my life by consuming this. It is downright fascinating to me to try and puzzle out for myself how you get to that point. Whether you be Linda Kasabian, for example, you fall in with the Manson family and you are under his sway and you are very impressionable and in a very vulnerable place in your life. And before you know it, this thing has spiraled so far out of control that you can't even remember where you started. Down to those cases where you know it was just an issue of, "Mm, it was one thing that happened on one bad day and that made all the difference. And that chain of events... Finding yourself in that position where this is just wrong place, wrong time. It's the same thing with the horror films. We talked about that during our Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode. Just embracing the random and somewhat destructive chaos that this world is. For
1: example, not seeking the cosmic why, as in trying to find order from disorder. Oh no,
0: absolutely not. That doesn't exist. To me, that would be a futile enterprise. I would be looking for something that I don't believe is there. That's not what I'm doing at all. The one thing that they mentioned that I found contradictory to our situation was a general sense that women are less affected by the sight of blood, which I find to be the exact opposite for our household. Gore and grotesquerie is much more my bailiwick than yours.
1: Just in general, outside of true crime, I have a pretty weak stomach. I had to get up and leave the theater when I saw Job of the Hut the first time. <laughs> So I definitely can't handle blood. So if it's a proven thing that women are consuming this much true crime, but they didn't always have the means to produce it, has that engagement with that audience changed over the years? Have people started to speak directly to that audience?
0: Kyla Woodard addressed that, the producer for the ID channel, talking specifically about audience numbers and how they try to specifically hit that spot where obviously they're getting viewers but tell these stories in a very specific way that's not exploitive and this blew me away the id channel as it turns out for women 25 to 55 is the number one television network on cable
1: just ask your mom as well even though she's slightly outside that demographic
0: so yes i would say without a doubt both the people who are the creators and the conduits for this entertainment are very specifically gearing it towards that female audience. They have to take it into account. You cannot hope to ignore what is approximately 60-65% to of your audience and hope to continue to thrive. The second symposium that day was called LA Despair, Chasing Death with John Gilmore, and this was a multimedia presentation from Ramey Bennett who was also on the first panel. Gilmore was an actor and then later a true crime and pulp fiction writer in Los Angeles who specialized in where crime and the pop culture landscape intersect.
1: He was not someone that I was familiar with. How about you? Had you read him before?
0: Oh, very definitely. He has written one of the definitive true crime books of my life, so yeah, I was familiar with his stuff. He'd also done a couple of very high-profile pieces that I was familiar with that I will mention as we go here. He was really ahead of his time as a cultural critic. He talked about mass shootings in the early 70s. He looked for psychological roots for crime before profilers became something the general public was familiar with. He conducted the very first interview with Manson in prison after the Tate-LaBianca murders. And in that, he focused on social theory versus lurid detail. The Black Dahlia is my connection to this. It is a personal case for him, and he wrote that book about it, my favorite book about the subject called Severed, which I highly recommend. It's a very personal case for me, too, and I found out from Ramey Bennett that Gilmore, similar to me, had a vivid dream of her that accounts for his fascination with the case. Gilmore was a really interesting guy, and I related a great deal to his approach to this material, his sympathy for the cast-offs, for the failures, his honesty about his own morbid obsessions. He's written a dozen books. Go read them. They are good. They are a unique insider perspective on fame and misfortune.
1: I definitely need to check that book out. Do you think I'll ever be able to figure out who actually killed the Black Dahlia?
0: Sadly, I think that one is going to go down in the annals of history, much like Jack the Ripper. We are never going to get an answer to that case. It's just gone. It's too late. And it makes me terribly sad to think that that's the case. On the plus side, the next symposium is the happy opposite end of that spectrum. The next symposium was called The Rise of the Armchair Detective, and that panel included Joshua Zeman, filmmaker, Christine Pelisek, author and journalist, Kevin Flynn, author and podcaster, Beck and Tyler Allen from the Minds of Madness podcast that we've mentioned on the show before. And it was moderated by writer Nabin Ruthnam. And it was about the role that non-law enforcement folks have played in the investigation and sometimes solution of both ongoing and cold cases.
1: Like a lot of people, I recently read michelle mcnamara's book on the golden state killer i'll be gone in the dark right after i read it i posted to a fan page that we will catch him that's what i said and a day later he was caught so did i receive credit during this symposium
0: (laughs) no one brought your name up it is a startling coincidence however
1: well how much dedication does something like that involve these folks sitting at home, puzzling these things out, doing this data work.
0: It takes a lot, and I know that people can mock these web sleuths for having, quote, too much time on their hands, unquote, but I'm glad they covered all the angles of this. They discussed the good of crowdsourcing this work, the processing of that raw data, the thankless chore, for example, of cross-referencing license plate numbers to addresses to phone numbers, that tedious, time-consuming work that a lot of police departments don't have the bodies to do sometimes. That's the stuff that narrows suspect pools and gets cases solved. They did also address the bad end of crackpots and dilettantes. Those people that are convinced that their neighbor is the Zodiac because they don't like what they've done with their shrubbery. Those meatheads like Payne Lindsay, direct quote, that decide that they're going to be a detective and just start googling cold cases to leverage that into podcast revenue. There was no love lost for that kid at this panel I was glad to see. It's an interesting conversation, and people like Payne Lindsay aside, there is definitely room for sincere and diligent amateur sleuths doing things the right way for the right reasons. They can provide a great deal of legitimate support for law enforcement in some of these cases.
1: In essence, they're committing a great public service.
0: Yes, some of them definitely are. Some of them definitely aren't, as evidenced by a couple of emails that Joshua Zeman read to us.
1: (laughs) It sounds like those were terrific symposiums, so hopefully when I get to go next year, wink wink, they'll have another great roster. But we were back to the film schedule next, correct?
0: Correct. The film schedule on day two kicked off with a short called The Sandman from 2016 directed by Lauren Knapp. It's about Dr. Carlo Musso, who has been a supervising physician on the state of Georgia's execution team, helping administer lethal injections since 2003. He personally opposes capital punishment, and the film examines how he reconciles that with being determined to provide complete medical care for the inmate right up until the last moments of their lives. Far and away, my favorite nonfiction short overall throughout the whole festival. It managed to do what Traffic Stop didn't about another controversial topic.
1: And after hearing his justification, what did you think about it?
0: I would rather he was there. I'm on his side as it turns out. Musso sees his role as similar to that of a priest administering to someone in that position. The obvious difference is that the priest is not pressing the button on that syringe, but his point, which I think is a well-made point, is that someone is going to do it. Wouldn't you rather have a compassionate, devoted physician in that capacity than the metaphorical man in a hood springing the trap door? It's a tough question, and the medical establishment is officially very clearly opposed to physicians participating in this process, so many do so anonymously. It was just a very balanced and nuanced 20-minute conversation about a subject that we could talk for hours about. It's a good springboard for conversation. I highly recommend it. The feature that that was paired with was a 15th anniversary screening of Monster from 2003, directed by Patty Jenkins and starring Charlize Theron and Christina Ricci. It's based on the true story of Eileen Warnos, probably the most notorious female serial killer of the modern era. She committed seven murders, and this film is, necessarily for time, a truncation combination of the events that led up to that series of killings, and goes through her capture and trial.
1: Now, this may end up going on my ants-in-the-pants list.
0: Really? It made that much of an impression?
1: It did. I had specifically avoided it, for reasons which now seem incredibly stupid.
0: What exactly were those?
1: I was really concerned that Charlize Theron's performance would feel like a stunt. That it would fall into that biopic category, which is a genre that I hate to begin with, of, wow, look at that actor who did this thing to their body or this prosthetic makes them unrecognizable. Whenever I hear that applied, I think, you are an idiot and you're not paying attention. But this was a revelation. And Patty Jenkins is really moving to the top of my list as well. This is an incredible accomplishment on her part. She worked directly with materials provided by Aileen Warnos. hundreds of letters. She shot this in 24 days. And in the script that she wrote, she includes a ton of detail that resonates, but isn't overly explained. Incorporating actual MOs that Warnos used other cons she employed, actual locations from her life and crimes. And coupled with Shirley's Theron's performance, that great physicality that she brings, the way she walks is amazing to watch. And I'm going to add a caveat, not caveat, and that is Christina Ricci. Similar to My Name is Maisha, I wasn't into her performance in the beginning, but it was reading Roger Ebert's review that caused me to look at it in a different way. And so when we get to certain points, like Aileen telling her girlfriend I had to do it, Sal, and the look on her face, and when she's explaining, I feel like I never had a choice, they've definitely shown that to me. It doesn't feel like serial killer tourism.
0: Well, the actual Aileen Warnos is such an odd combination of sympathetic and wholly unsympathetic characteristics. So it's a testament to Theron's performance that she can show us the human and broken parts so precisely. The story is such a tragedy in so many ways. It's one of the most, if only something different had just happened at any point stories that I know of.
1: Starting with conception and birth as well.
0: And it's a risky play to make her so eminently relatable, to make the audience wish something, anything could have gone her way. An argument could be made that it goes too far. Certainly the families of her innocent victims, because she did murder people that were no threat to her, could make that case. Ultimately, she was beyond saving by the time we get to know her. But the real achievement here in this film is how vividly Charlize Theron makes us appreciate that she wasn't always so. While we're on the subject, I would just like to take the opportunity to say that Nick Broomfield, who made a documentary about Eileen Mornos, is a pox-upon documentary film, And his influence on other documentarians that make themselves the center of their films rather than their purported subjects is a cancer. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, back to the film for a second. (laughs) Mentioning those innocent victims, I think the great stroke was using Scott Wilson.
0: Oh, i love to see him any time. It's such a pleasant surprise when he pops up.
1: Absolutely, and he sells that character. Listening to this story and a lot of other stories of all too familiar pathologies, feeling pushed to the edge by deep cruelty and inhumanity, it makes me wonder why some people survive and some people don't. And I was really drawn to something that Patty Jenkins said, why she was inspired to take on this subject. And she had heard what we were all told this is, a lesbian man-hating killer. And then she saw Aileen Wuornos crying while her girlfriend testified against her and felt like there was something else there, some other story to tell. And at no point am I rooting for her, by any stretch of the imagination. But the thing that I look for, trying to understand, I feel like I get that in this film.
0: The next short we had that evening was called 42 Counts from 2018, directed by Jill Gavarghizian. It's a dramatization of two female roommates that discover the man they are renting their apartment from has placed surveillance cameras all around the house, including bedrooms and bathrooms. It's well-made, creepy, genuinely frightening at one point. It's an actual case from Kansas City, Missouri from 2014. The short is only five minutes long, but it serves its function, which is primarily to raise awareness that voyeurism can also be a crime that has lingering significant effects. People don't often think of it the same way they think of direct sexual assault, but it can also be just as devastating. And the feature that was paired with that, keeping with this technology theme, was The Stranger, from 2017, directed by Nicole Horanyi. It's the true story of Amanda, a single mother who is swept off her feet by a man she meets on Facebook, that it turns out is the heir to a vast family fortune, or is he... This was unique in that it is essentially a feature-linked reenactment of pivotal events in this relationship using the actual people to whom it happened.
1: Except for Casper. For very good reasons, he is not in the film.
0: He would be the perpetrator of this con. I wasn't sure I was going to go for the way that they were executing this, but it turned out to really work. It didn't disturb the flow of the narrative at all for me. How about you?
1: I adored this. Inside this festival, outside this festival, I think this is a great film.
0: It was definitely another case of interesting work from a mostly non-professional cast, which is an advantage in some ways, but just because it happened to you is not a guarantee that you can effectively put it across on screen. Special shout out to Conrad the French Bulldog for being the coolest dog in the festival.
1: Because of him, this was Gibson's favorite movie.
0: Dog notwithstanding, my favorite part was Amanda's response to discovering the truth, stopping this in its tracks. No maybe, no door left open. She showed great resolve of a type that we don't see chronicled as often in this genre. I responded to her strength a great deal. She was warm and giving, but she did not brook any nonsense.
1: And it was her strength that attracted the director to this story. She had heard the tale on a podcast and was thinking, could it be me? And thought, as you mentioned, the way Amanda takes this information and what she does with it sets her apart from a lot of these other stories. And I think she has some really interesting insights into the possible pathology of Casper. He's not in a position to explain himself, so we have to make some guesses. The director felt that Casper had really convinced himself that he was in love with Amanda. And she was definitely not his first victim and that he was also really driven by this idea that he has helped these other people that he has conned. Ultimately, he seems to want to be the hero of the story. He does not want to be himself. And you know I'm a huge fan of American greed, a very specific strain of true crime.
0: Since you're not into the more gruesome artifacts of some of these cases, white-collar crime is much more up your alley?
1: I am fascinated by the process of this stuff. From the people who use Whiteout on documents, (laughs) to con millions of dollars from people, to a lot of similar con artists to Casper, the ones who seem to think they're really enriching others. And therein lies the Ponzi scheme. If they just get that one extra person to invest, they're going to pay everybody back. I still wonder, at the end of the day, why did he choose Amanda? His con is not predicated upon her having a bunch of money that he can take. He opens these accounts in her name. So why her? We don't know the answer to that.
0: It's an extremely elaborate scheme when you see that the end game is him fraudulently applying for a few thousand dollars worth of a loan, especially when you compare it to the scale of some of his other cons.
1: It makes me think back to Abducted in Plain Sight and B about this person who seems so diabolical. They create this character that seems to fill in the needs of the people that they're conning.
0: And that's where your viewing ended, unfortunately, right?
1: The last film was not available, so you're on your own with this one.
0: Well, the last short of the evening was Don't Be a Hero from 2018, directed by Pete Lee, starring Missy Pyle and Ashley Spillers. It's about a woman who battles her loneliness and boredom by robbing banks in the guise of a cowboy on her lunch break. But after the adrenaline rush wears off, she still has to deal with her deeply unhappy life. This was a great short. Of the fictionalized shorts, maybe even the features, I loved this so much. It's wonderfully cast, it's funny, it's sweet in parts, it's suspenseful, it does so much in its short running time. And it's another story that hits close to home as all this happened here in Texas. Her real name was Peggy Joe Tallis. And it's a fascinating case with a truly sympathetic and heartbreaking character at its center. And the filmmakers convey a real sense of all of that in just a few minutes. I will make sure and link an article about this case because I find this one so fascinating. In fact, I'll try to put as many references to the actual cases themselves in the show notes. So if you want to read further, make sure you go to our website and look for those links. But in the meantime, don't be a hero. Pete Lee, highly recommended. The closing film of the festival was Hostages from 2017, directed by Rezo Giganeshvili and starring Irake Kvirikadze and Tina Dalakishvili. It's based on the true story of a group of Georgian youths, sometimes portrayed as a terrorist group, that attempt to hijack a plane to escape the oppressive Soviet regime.
1: Since I didn't get to see this one... Where do you come down on the question of terrorists or not?
0: These kids aren't terrorists. There was no statement being made. There was no grand ideological motivation. They just wanted out so they can swim when they want, listen to the records they want, travel freely, things we take for granted. They were desperate in a way that only idealistic young people are. They just put together a horrible plan with incredibly high stakes and blew it. Which is not a spoiler, because in the very opening scenes of the film, you see that they've been captured. The film is a solid, faithful recreation of that horribly clumsy attempt at hijacking their way to freedom. They were just emotionally driven, impatient, poorly organized. The one thing about this that might be a drawback is the large cast. Maybe if they had streamlined the story to focus more on the young lovers on the run angle, there is a particular couple at the center of this activity. It didn't exactly knock me out, but it was at the end of a 13-hour day, so I don't know if I was just watched out. I am particularly sorry in this case that you didn't get to see it so I could get a more objective viewpoint. I am definitely curious to see if you would feel differently. The hijacking set piece itself was solid and suspenseful. Probably the high point for me, the rest, eh.
1: What were the relative ages of the youths?
0: Very young, early 20s, some actually probably in their late teens. Or at least that's how they were portrayed on screen. The actual case, I'm not 100% sure.
1: And to me, it seems like something that would just feel hopeless from the start.
0: I don't know if it's just the Georgian landscape, but yes, it is very bleak and gray. It's still beautifully shot. The Baltic Sea is probably not the most exciting seaside locale, but it definitely has a distinct beauty to it. It's very well made and it's gorgeous to look at in places. It just didn't grab me like some of these others did. It's definitely riveting and perplexing in places, and it has that sad ending. We'll have to track it down and watch it together again, and that way we can see if it was just me, and we'll see what you think about it.
1: Great. And I'm not going to read up on it beforehand as well. I want it to unfold for me.
0: And that was it. That was the film that closed everything down, and it was a really great experience overall.
1: I really hope it was successful enough for them to do the festival next year, because I would love to go.
0: I would guess that it is definitely a possibility that they will be able to continue this just based upon the response. The audience response was interesting. It was definitely a true crime audience, much more than a film audience, which is the exact opposite of what I'm used to at events like this. The symposiums were full to capacity, and the films, while still well attended, did not have the same ratio of attendees, with the exception of Abducted in Plain Sight, which was the opening night centerpiece and had a full house. Since you watched the films remotely, your perspective of it, though, was entirely just as a curated group of films, and you said it worked really well that way as a festival.
1: Absolutely. These were great choices. Regardless of the festival setting, regardless of the true crime genre, I think that they were solid films that I would want to watch in any setting.
0: Yeah, I would like to take a second here to give a special hand to the programming team for putting together such a diverse batch of films. I feel like they took us for quite a ride with just five feature selections. A jaw-dropping case profile, an experimental foray that was somewhere between musical and the thin blue line, a classic of the genre, a feature-length reenactment using participants from the case, a sleek thriller ripped straight from the headlines that actually also had a sliver of that classic young lovers on the run angle. All types of crimes, all types of moods, all sorts of voices represented. It was really great. Lisa Gallagher and her team should be proud of what they put together. The programming team I already mentioned, but the volunteers, the staff, everyone I interacted with was great. It was a really good time, and I can't wait to go back. Toronto is a really great city.
1: I'll have to take your word for it.
0: (laughs) And with that, we are at the end of episode 78. Before we do anything else, I wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who recently contributed to the Patreon, David Blakesley, Chris Sweet, Jordan Fegley, And Lee, we just got a first name from Lee, but thanks Lee, we appreciate the support very much.
1: We just did a crime film of sorts in The Last of Sheila.
0: And certain aspects of it are very definitely true, but probably not the murder. Coming up soon, we're putting up an episode about one of our favorite television shows of all time, In Search Of, which covers Jack the Ripper. If you would like to take advantage of some of the perks, like bonus episodes, that we offer via our Patreon, that is at patreon.com slash magiclantern. Please go take a look at that. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. Just about any place that you get podcasts, you'll find us there. We are on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to the people who have shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Grindhouse Dave, Andy Wolverton, Matteo Boscarol, David Lawrence, Chad Engelbert, the fine gentleman at FUDs on Film, and the nice folks at the African Diaspora Film Festival. A couple of special shoutouts this week. It has been a really great week for me to be able to meet some friends and longtime supporters of the show. I was able to spend some time with Keith Rich because his excellent band Druids came through Austin. If you are a fan of heaviness in the vein of the sword, mastodon, music like that, please go check out druidsiowa.com. You will not be disappointed. I also got to spend a little time with Jeff Duncanson in Toronto before going to the festival, and he showed me some beautiful pictures of his cattle dogs. They were super cute. Thanks, Jeff. And one last special thank you, I want to say thanks to Mike Vaughn for sending us his excellent book, The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema. If, like me, you are a fan of the Mondo Macabro label or other cinema that comes from the wildest, unexplored corners of the globe, this would be a great resource for you. I even found things that I had never heard of before in it. So if you're looking for something that you could just open up at random and dive into one of the craziest films you've ever seen, The Ultimate Guide to Strange Cinema, it's available on Amazon. And finally, for all of our episodes, including supplemental material, you can find that at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com.
1: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.